I'm Elena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. Today's guest is Maithili Kunda, a researcher and assistant professor of computer science and computer engineering at Vanderbilt University. Maithili was named one of MIT's innovators and visionaries under 35 for her work on an innovative approach to artificial intelligence. We talked about incorporating aspects or characteristics seen in people in the autism spectrum to artificial intelligence and the different perspective this brings to solving problems in the realm of AI. We discussed the experiments that she conducted as well as the results. We also talked about the role of machine learning in AI and possible applications for her research. If you like the show, rate it on iTunes, send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. I love to hear your thoughts about the show or even suggestions of topics. Maithili is joining us this morning from Tennessee. Maithili, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. So recently, MIT Technology Review recognized you as a remarkable innovator and visionary. And this was as part of the list of innovators under 35. And one of the highlights of your career has been your work on a novel approach to creating artificial intelligence inspired by people in the autism spectrum. What was your first exposure to artificial intelligence? I first started getting involved with AI um, as, well, I guess I've always read a lot of science fiction. And so, of course, you know, like great um, stories of AI and, you know, lots of very um, interesting predictions made by science fiction authors over the years. So yeah. um, really going back, I think, since I was a little kid, um, in as far as sort of, um, you know, learning about learning and doing sort of actual AI research, um, it was while I was an undergraduate student at MIT, um, and I got involved, um, I took some AI courses, um, and I also got involved in doing AI research then. Um, so that was really my first exposure. It, I think in particular, um, there was one class that I took that was called the Human Intelligence Enterprise. Um, and it was kind of an unusual class because we really were sort of thinking deeply about, you know, what AI means for understanding the mind and what the mind means for building better AI. Um, and so that was, that kind of was the moment, I think, that really sparked my interest. And when you were a kid, what were some of the books that you mentioned you were reading? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I think I read, um, uh, well... Was it the 2001 Space Odyssey? Or? <laughs> um, I, not that one in particular. So I definitely, I remember, I mean, I've, I read <laughs> so many. I, I think um, I remember reading um, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. Um, that made a big impression on me. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, I guess just, you know, the classics, like I read, um, and, uh, I read Ray Bradbury, um, and I read H.G. Wells. And yeah. So let's start off with the current state of AI, because your approach is, uh, different than the current state. So 
What does it mostly consist of, what we have? So um, the, uh, <clears throat> the current, um, sort of the, the, the standard approach of AI, um, of a lot of AI anyways, is um, to, um, it's, it's really about how information gets represented um, and then used to solve some kind of task. Like, I think that's really at the heart of a lot of um, AI systems. Um, and the conventional approach has been to represent that information um, in what we might call a symbolic form. Um, there are more technical terms. The technical term is propositional. Um, but basically, it's the idea that you take information and you represent it as variables or symbols that are sort of arbitrary. Um, and then that's a really powerful way to represent information because then you can manipulate these symbols any way that you want. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a way to sort of represent all different kinds of information in the same format. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's been, been kind of the standard, um, standard approach, yeah. I guess, for a lot of AI. And then um, what was a little bit different in my research, um, which I was not the first person to, to sort of think about this either, but um, yeah. uh, is we're taking information and just kind of keeping it in a visual form, representing it visually instead of converting it into these arbitrary propositions. Mm -hmm. And the current state of AI is what you refer to as verbal thinkers, right? Yes, yeah. And these representations, are there they um, like vectors with uh, zeros and ones or... Or is it more complicated than that? Um, it's it's more it's more like it's a general it's kind of a general class of representations, and so th things like vectors of zeros and ones would definitely count. But there's you know, um, there's there's an infinite number of different kinds of representations you could have. So it could be things that are like um, sort of more structured. So you can think of having like a hierarchy. Um, Uh, so, so say if you have something where you have a symbol that stands for dog, and then you have another symbol that stands for mammal, and then in your representation you can say, well, a dog is a type of mammal. So that would count as this kind of symbolic representation, too. Okay. And what are some of the limitations of systems that are more verbal thinkers? Well, <clears throat> I am not sure... Um, I don't think we actually know what the limitations are. Um, okay. I think that, you know, a lot of AI research has really been, you know, for the last several decades, it's really been about pushing the envelope and, you know, getting these systems to do um, all kinds of newer and better things. And so I, I don't think it's so much, it's not really so much that those systems are limited as just that, you know, we might like to think of having an alternate set of capabilities. Yeah, because, like you said, the systems are currently growing and still being explored. Oh, very much so, yes. Yeah, I think we're yeah. sort of far from reaching the potential um, for that kind of system. Yeah. Um, I think the way that I think about it is, you know, just like with human thinking, if you think about things like, if you think about something like verbal thinking, it's certainly like using language. Um, it's certainly like very powerful, and nobody would say that that's not useful um, or interesting, you know, to study or, or, or um, uh, you know, Like, that's certainly a, a really strong set of capabilities. Um, but the interesting question comes, like, well, what happens when you add that to, like, a very different set of capabilities? What can a combined system do together? Yeah, and we'll talk about that later on. And uh, just one more question on the current state. What What is one example of an application that is um, verbal thinker? Like you mentioned earlier, 
representing dog, mm -hmm. but what's one example that you can think of that works in a verbal way? Um, well, um, that is a good question. Um, so uh, here, one concrete example is um, recently um, IBM developed the system Watson that um, I guess this was a couple of years ago. Um, and it kind of it kind of made the news for uh, competing in Jeopardy against some of the Jeopardy champions. And I think Watson in the end won, um, but it was pretty close. Um, and so I think if you looked at the way that Watson represents information and reasons about it, um, it's, you know, it's not verbal in the exact same way that humans are verbal, but it's certainly like a, you know, a propositional symbolic type of representation that was used. Yeah. And it was pretty cool. I did get to see the video. Yeah, it was very exciting. Yeah. 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 So uh, as I mentioned before, part of your approach has been to take some concepts seen in people in the autism spectrum to artificial intelligence. And how do you define autism? Um, well, well, I mean, uh, so I, um, I think <laughs> that is also a very tricky question. I don't think anyone um, has like a really excellent definition of autism um, even yeah. today. It's it's definitely been it's a it's a very complicated condition. Um, I mean, in my research, I just kind of go by um, you know go by the current diagnostic definitions that are produced by um, mm -hmm. psychologists for the most. Part. How how do you think about it though? Like if if I say autism, is there something a first thing that comes to mind or? Well, I think that um, the word that I use most often when I'm talking about autism is atypical, um, because like there's certainly something for you know for some group of people who are on the autism spectrum, um, there's certainly something that is different um, than typical. And I think you know we don't really understand totally what those differences are, but um, yeah, I, so I think you know just something. Um, It's just people who think a little bit differently um, than most of the rest of us do. Yeah. And what were the aspects that you looked at from these individuals that you brought to artificial intelligence? Um, well, mainly, um, so I guess um, mainly I, it was focusing on um, sort of thinking and reasoning processes. And it was really, um, it's really uh, this idea of uh, visual thinking. Um, so there's some evidence that some people with autism um, tend to be more visual thinkers um, than typically developing people. Um, and so that was really sort of the core idea um, that I started thinking about. You know, if, if, we, if, if most of the current AI systems are sort of similar to verbal thinkers, You know, what would happen um, if we could make some AI systems that are visual thinkers? Is that the thinking in picture, pictures hypothesis? Um, yes. Okay. And are you familiar with how this hypothesis was tested? Like before you decided to bring this on your research, um, you probably looked at evidence that this actually happens. Yes, I did. Um, Um, absolutely, yes. So I first encountered this idea um, when I read a book that was a narrative autobiography um, by a person named Temple Grandin. Um, Temple Grandin is on the autism spectrum, and um, 
she has written a lot about how she feels sort of introspectively that she's a visual thinker and how it has affected her life. Um, but of course, as you said, from there, um, I became interested in, well, what is, you know, is this actually true um, for people with autism? Is it true of most people or some people? And I think that, you know, there's a lot of open questions yet. I don't think we, we really know. And, and part of it is, is, is um, it's very hard to study how people think because it's kind of an invisible thing. Um, but it, I think it seems that um, there, there seems to be growing evidence um, through psychology and neuroscience that there are some people with autism who seem to be more visual thinkers um, than typically developing people. Yeah. And taking this idea of thinking in pictures, was there an early experiment that you did that showed you the potential of using this new approach in AI? Um, yes, there was. Um, so the, the, it was uh, one of the first things that I worked on um, which was looking at um, how AI systems could solve a particular intelligence test. Um, so there's this test called the Raven's Progressive Matrices. Um, it's actually quite an old test. It was developed in the 30s, um, and it's really widely used um, to, as a measure of general intelligence. Um, and it, it, um, it, the, the problems are visually presented, um, so they look like little pictures. And you might have seen something like this before where they'll be like, one square going to two squares, and then there's one circle, and you kind of have to pick the thing that goes in the empty spot. Um, and it turns out that um, there had been um, several AI systems that were designed in the past to solve these kinds of problems because you know it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting um, sort of human capability that we can solve these problems. Um, and so, and these AI systems would all. Um, use what I would call kind of a verbal approach. Um, so they would convert these images into symbols and then do reasoning over these symbols in order to come up with the answer. Um, and mm -hmm. so um, and so I got, you know, this was, I, I was really interested um, in this test, um, mostly because there were some studies coming out of the autism research community that showed that some people with autism were actually um, sort of better, did better on this test than you would expect according to their other, um, you know, according to other IQ measures. And so, um, so we started wondering, you know, like maybe is it because maybe they are solving this test visually? Um, yeah. And from there we started asking, well, is it even possible to solve this test visually? Um, and so the, the sort of first, um, you know, AI project in this area that I did uh, was to try to build an AI system that could solve problems from this Ravens test um, in a visual thinking way instead of a verbal thinking way. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that, about how a computer or, or a system can think visually. For example, one of the things I read about was in, in similar areas like image recognition. There's this notion of defining features, for example, blobs, edges, corners, or points of interest. Do you have something similar in your approach as to taking a set of features and then finding a way to relate them? Um, it's, it's similar. Um, so a lot of the work right now um, on images uh, is really geared towards um, taking an image and, and extracting symbols from it. Um, so, you know, like, can you look at a, at a cat? Can you look at a picture of a cat and actually say, oh, there's, this is a cat, it's sitting on a tree, the cat looks very happy. Um, but in, in my work, it's a little bit different because it's more about 
what can you do just with the visual information by itself? Um, and so in this particular project, we actually didn't, we kind of, we treated the, the raw pixels essentially just as the features, um, and we didn't do any other kind of feature extraction. Um, and so then it was more about if you're given a set of images and you're just looking at the pixels there, can you reason about how those pixels are related to each other um, in some kind of logical way? Okay. So with those pixels, you're not even thinking of the notion of a blob or something. Right. Yeah. In this, in this, in, in some of our other projects, we started to look at, you know, how do you, how can you separate things into blobs and things? But in that initial work, we were just actually dealing with, it was just either a black pixel or a white pixel. And that was it. Okay. And for the Raven's test, you've had two approaches, or, or at least I, I saw two of them. One of them is called the the affine and set transformation induction model. Right. And then you re enhance this, and this is what it's called the recursive visual memory. Uh-huh, yep. It's probably, it might be hard to explain just on a podcast, but at a higher level, what is the algorithm doing? Okay, so um, the, I think, I, yeah, it... Um, the algorithm is yeah. um, essentially uh, what it's doing is looking at um, a set of images and trying to figure out how are these images related to each other. Um, and the key there um, is that as as humans, um, we have certain there's certain kinds of visual relationships that we just know, um, probably because we've grown up watching them. And 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 by visual relationship, I mean things like uh, rotation. So when you take one image um, and rotate it and get a new image, um, you know, that's a, a way in which those two images are related, and it's all purely visual. Um, so the, the algorithm, the, the AI system that I built actually has in memory um, a bunch of these visual relationships, things like rotation and translation um, and adding two images together and, and subtracting one image from another. And then what it does is it um, essentially searches through those relationships. So when it sees a pair of images, it'll search through those relationships and try to figure out, oh, like these images are actually related because they're rotated and scaled. Um, or these images are rotated because there's a translation plus adding a bunch of pixels. Um, mm -hmm. And then, um, and so that's really how, um, how the algorithm works to reason about how images are related. And, and that's sort of the basic kind of reasoning that it does to solve these um, test problems. Um, yeah. yeah. Did you compare this to a traditional AI approach? Um, yeah, we, so um, the, uh, there, there have, so I mentioned, yeah, there have been a few other approaches um, yeah. that were done. Um, and I think that um, the, as of sort of the last, you know, the, people are sort of continually working on their models. Like we're still updating, um, we're still updating ours too. Um, I think the last time that we checked, um, the traditional symbolic models um, were answering more questions um, than the visual model. Um, yeah. But I think that it is not. It's. It was never really about. It was never really a competition. I think um, yeah. because it's not. It, you know, it's not saying you know, one of these is better than the other. It's really about, there's, you know, there's two different ways to solve these kinds of problems. 
And I actually think the more interesting questions comes from um, when you start to think about what if you had a system that had both of these methods um, as yeah. part of its capabilities and how could it, you know, switch between them and, and could it get even better performance using a combination of the two? Yeah, that's what I was thinking now. Like, it's not a competition, like you said. It, 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 it's like you're giving the computer or a system another skill to solve a problem. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And did you see any interesting results when when you tried to solve the Raven's test? Yeah, we did. You know, I think, um, so um, the uh, the last version of the system, um, the, the last version that we've sort of tested completely was uh, getting, it was, it was solving one of these tests at about the level of an average 16 or 17 year old. Um, and the tests are pretty hard. So it was, um, we were, we were um, impressed um, by the level of performance that it was getting. I think that yeah. what surprised, I think there was a, a couple of problems where we were actually surprised at how the algorithm would solve them because, um, so, so most of the problems it would solve and you could kind of understand, oh, like, you know, this, it found that it found this visual relationship and it, and it would make sense. There was a couple of problems where it would successfully solve the problem, but it was using an aspect of the pattern that I hadn't even noticed myself. Um, so that was very interesting because it kind of tells you like we're so used to looking at things from our perspective in a particular way um, and sometimes yeah. we forget that there might be you know it's it's hard to think about like oh there might be this completely different way of looking at the problem yeah or rotating like a diagonal instead of 90 degrees yeah. or something yeah. yeah so where it does the your approach fall under like machine learning or supervised learning or statistical model? Um, so, um, no, it, not, um, it currently, it doesn't yet. Um, so yeah. the, the model, so the models I've worked on till now don't have a learning mechanism in them. Um, mm -hmm. they would fall under, um, People sort of sometimes will broad will call this type of AI symbolic AI. It's a little confusing because I know I just said it's not like a symbolic system, but it's um yeah in in contrast to like a machine learning based system um, yeah. But uh, but we are actually looking at how to add learning into the system because if you remember, um, I told you that the system has a memory, um, and in the, in its memory it has. Um, Uh, it sort of knows about these visual transformations. So we sort of program into the system, um, you know, it, it sort of has innate knowledge that things can rotate, that, you know, images can rotate. But mm -hmm. machine learning is really about, you know, for any knowledge in a system, can that actually be learned? And so one of the things that we're working on right now, um, one of the ideas we're exploring is, instead of sort of hand feeding that knowledge into the system, could it actually learn Um, that something like rotation exists, you know, by watching things rotate in the real world. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And with your approach, was there, a, like, let's talk about technologies. Is there a particular programming language that you found or better tools for solving these types of problems? Um, not particularly. Um, we sort of just use, we use a lot of different programming languages. I think it's more, um, uh, 
it's more just, you know, what is best for the problem at hand. And so we use a lot of Java and MATLAB and other things. It's kind of a variety. MATLAB, okay. And do you see an approach like this maybe later being applied in, in a medical field, for example, analyzing images of cancer or x-rays? Like, let's project to a few more decades. Sure. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely um, some potential there. Yes, um, I think there's there's kind of two ways um, that this kind of research would uh, contribute to fields like that. Um, yeah, I think that one is you know with um, you know these systems. This is you know sort of very very early stages for having sort of visual thinking capabilities. But if you think about being able to um, you know take images and, and imagine with them, you know, like, you know, to, to sort of manipulate them um, and think about really subtle visual relationships, then absolutely, yeah, I think that especially with the growth of, um, you know, with so much data um, that's floating around, um, I think another interesting area for this would be um, in sort of reasoning about data visualizations, too, so not just, you know, images of real things. Um, oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. And you're currently a uh, are you assistant professor at Vanderbilt? Or? Yes, I am. Okay. Why not pursue AI at a corporation? Did you think about this? Oh, um, certainly. Um, yeah, it, it was always um, an interesting option to think about. Um, for me personally, I've always loved uh, teaching. Um, and so I like, I think one of the, the things that I love most about my current job um, is being able to have do a combination of research and teaching, which I wouldn't necessarily be able to do um, at a corporate job. Yeah, okay, that, that's great. And last question, what are you going to be exploring in the next five years with AI? Like at a higher level? Yeah, um, that is a great question. Um, I think that... Um, well, a lot of things can change in yeah. five years. I know, like technologically speaking. It I know it really. But yeah. Um, so um, definitely, one of my, um, in in fact, one of my current projects that's sort of just starting right now, which I, I hope will evolve a lot in the next few years, is looking at. Um, so when you start thinking about visualizations of data, um, we're looking at you know how to get AI systems. Um, to sort of visually understand data, but also to help understand what people are doing um, when people um, look at data. But I think, I think at a at a higher level, one of the things I'm I would really love to start. Um, one of the sort of mysteries I think that I would like to make some headway on in the next few years is when you look at how different people think differently. It's it's almost like a, um, you know, mystery is really the best word I have for it because it's so hard to think about the world from someone else's perspective. Um, and I think that these kinds of AI systems um, might be one way to start unlocking those questions a little bit because if you have two systems that think in completely different ways, you can sort of look at them very objectively and say, well, you know, because the system is thinking about it in this way, that's why it's coming to these conclusions. And because the system is thinking in this different way, that's why it's coming to those conclusions. Um, and so I yeah. think that that is really a question that I would like to explore more.
So also learning about humans more. Yeah, very much so. And actually, one of the guests, the previous guest on the show was Caitlin Hova, and she has synesthesia. And she said she didn't know until she was 20 years old because a professor said, oh, there's some people that see colors mm -hmm. when they listen to music. And she was like, what? <laughs> Everybody doesn't have that. Like, it was a shock to her. So I can definitely see that, you know, uncovering things from humans that we we don't talk about or we don't think about mm -hmm. yeah yeah well Maithili thank you for coming on the show it's been a pleasure talking to you and I I'm really looking forward to seeing what you'll be working on next thank you very much the pleasure is all mine